Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Architecture. I'm your host, Kimberly Zarekor. Today, we'll be hearing an interview with John Harwood, author of The Interface, IBM and the Transformation of Corporate Design, 1945 to 1976, published last year by University of Minnesota Press. In this book, Harwood, who is an architectural historian, has written the first history of IBM's corporate design program, And at the same time, he totally rewrites our understanding of the modern corporation and its cultural and material practices. Originally, Harwood thought that he'd write a project about the Harvard-trained architect Elliot Noyce, but his sources led him to tell a very different story about Noyce's role as a corporate consultant to IBM. Noyce led a large and talented team that was hired to remake IBM's image at every scale from its logo to its computer interface to its architectural building standards. Some of the 20th century's greatest architects and designers, including Charles Eames, Marcel Breuer, Ludwig Mies van der Rohe, and Eero Saarinen, were affiliated with IBM in this period. As you'll hear in my interview, Harvard calls IBM a determining case rather than an exemplary case study, because of its self-articulated corporate culture. In his well-crafted study, compiled with extensive archival research and interviews with some of the story's protagonists, post-war design takes on a huge significance for our own contemporary world, where the computer and the interface are a seamless and natural part of our lives in every respect. The leadership and the designers chronicled in this book had no idea what was coming, But Harwood convinces us that our environment would look very different today without their intervention. So I hope you enjoy learning more about IBM, a company who thought of itself, as Harwood quotes, as a business whose business was how other businesses do business. This is a slogan that will make much more sense to you after you hear what Harwood has to say. Hi, John. Hi, Kimberly. I'm really happy to welcome you today to New Books in Architecture. I'm here with John Harwood to talk about his book, The Interface, IBM and the Transformation of Corporate Design, 1945 to 1976, published last year by University of Minnesota Press. So, John, will you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, Yeah, I'm originally from Portland, Oregon, um, and I uh, originally went to Brown University intending to be a mechanical engineer, uh, but was quickly seduced uh, by courses in classics and art history and architecture. Um, and I ended up uh, pursuing an honors thesis there uh, with my advisor, Dietrich Neumann. Um, and uh, that led me to a kind of sustained interest in the intersections between architecture and capitalism and technology. Um, so I went from Brown straight away. Uh, to Columbia University in the Department of Art, History, and Archaeology, uh, where I worked with a number of different uh, uh, faculty members. And, of course, that's where I met you. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, we are yeah. old classmates. <laughs> that's right. Um, and, uh, and there my interests really broadened um, from my initial uh, passion for 19th century American and European architecture uh, in both directions chronologically um, back into the 17th. 18th centuries, uh, but also, of course, forward into the 20th and 21st. Um, So for my doctoral work at Columbia, um, I pursued a dissertation that initially started uh, with an interest in the industrial designer and architect, Elliot Noyes, um, and it eventually um, through my investigation of his career, uh, which was unfortunately at the time rather little known or understood, um, uh, I, through that research I encountered um, a series of what I regard as important problems in the history of architecture and technology and capitalism in the 20th century. Um, looking at the various monographs on these kinds of designers, uh, the ones that have come to be known by the horrible moniker mid-century modern, um, uh, 
these monographic treatments tend to uh, approach each designer as though he or she is an individual um, uh, rather than as a business practice. Now, one can understand why uh, this is so. Of course, narrating uh, things biographically in history writing is a very useful crib. Uh, uh, we can say that the individual stands in for a larger group, and uh, most of the time we can get away with it. Um, it doesn't do too much violence to the historical record. But in dealing with somebody like Noyes, whose modus operandi was to collaborate with incredibly large organizations, um, such as IBM, uh, but also many other companies, uh, Cummins Engine, Pan Am, uh, and, and so on, Mobile Oil, the real giants of, of industry. Um, and, and so it suddenly appeared to me that it was going to be wholly inadequate to try to approach Noise's career um, uh, through the kind of standard tropes of biography. Um, so then I had to sort of sort out uh, how, how to approach it. Uh, and I'm certainly happy to sort of get into that um, uh, if you'd like. Um, um, but well, one, uh, I don't know if that's uh, the end of the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I can ask you about is I think, you know, the biographical strategy is really easy sometimes when you can dig down into the sources and the sources kind of coalesce around a person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you find Noyce's papers or you have Noyce's papers, then that's an easy way to kind of get at him. But I mm -hmm. wonder, um, in this case, if the papers either led you to other things or if there was a kind of limitation there or it just became immediately obvious to you that you had to kind of reconceptualize the approach? That's a great question. Um, and uh, I think that the answer is already implicit in the question. Um, <laughs> yes, in looking at the various archival traces um, that Noyes left behind, whether in his own archive, uh, which is still a private archive, um, or the traces that he left behind other designers' archives and in corporate archives, it became very clear that although Noyes himself was a tremendously uh, likable, intelligent, um, uh, sympathetic uh, character, um, that 99.99% of the latest of this archive uh, was um, in fact nothing to do uh, with his personality um, and Almost none of it had to do with um, being able to trace some kind of a formal logic to his design practice. Um, instead, uh, the vast majority of the documents that he left behind uh, had to do with a kind of different order of uh, design activity than we're used to thinking of architects uh, pursuing. Um, uh, noise was concerned uh, with things like management, and logistics. Um, he was concerned with something that he called corporate character, um, teasing out um, through the production of material artifacts, um, the core essence of a corporation, um, this vast abstract and um, uh, even multinational enterprise. Um, so it seemed to me that um, uh, to try to explain Noyes' design production uh, by trying to explain Noyes the man uh, was to put the cart before the horse. Um, the problem instead would have to be um, how do you actually approach uh, his designs from the other end of uh, through the what we would normally in architectural history call the client, um, uh, this uh, patron who um, commissions the design work and so on. And so I approached it from there, and that's actually where I think Noise's personality and his uh, unique qualities as a designer really emerged. Um, uh, what makes Noise um, uh, so accomplished, I think, in the middle of the 20th century uh, in working with corporations is his profound understanding of the organizations themselves um, and uh, his ability to actually uh, uh, sustain over decades a dialogue with that client um, and uh, to insinuate um, his design work um, into the corporation, not just as a kind of formal exercise or even as most corporate design is historicized as a kind of marketing ploy. Instead, what he wanted to do was to have design literally reform uh, the day-to-day -day practices of everyone uh, who was involved with the corporation. And um, uh, this is an important part of a book that eventually emerged from this research. He wanted, through this reform of the corporation, to extend the process of reform through design outwards to a larger population. 
And but his work with IBM, which was the most important work of his career, um, was tremendously successful at this. Um, one of the things that I argue in the introduction to the book is that um, rather than considering IBM as what we might call a case study in historical writing, uh, you know, selecting out a special uh, moment in history in order to metonymically use it, use it as a metonym to understand much broader or more complex phenomena. Uh, the IBM case is a, a very different animal. It's what I call a determining case. And there's a very specific reason for this. Um, IBM, as a maker of business machines, um, wasn't just concerned to make the machines and sell them. Um, what they said uh, about themselves were that they were a business whose business is to determine how other businesses do business. So their products um, and their management practices, uh, their, their aim was to extend those to every large-scale organization on the planet. Um, so whether it is a university or a small business or it's a large multinational corporation or even a state, a nation state, um, IBM uh, and its information management processes um, became intrinsic to what we think of when we think of uh, contemporary large-scale social organizations, bureaucracies, and so on. So... Taking this idea of IBM as a business that, that also teaches other businesses how to do business, could you say a little bit about how you situated this project in architectural history? Because if we imagine that the project at some point or the book transformed into a study of, you know, from a study of an architect or an architecture in the traditional sense into the study of a corporation, its practices, its people, its ideas, you know, and uh, thinking about architectural history as a discipline that, you know, we both know has a tendency to be a little bit conservative. If you could say mm-hmm. something about how you think about your work in that context, how you are able to bridge that gap to from architectural history to what I would call a true interdisciplinary project. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I hope it's truly interdisciplinary. Um, uh, so thanks for the compliment. Uh, the um, but it's a great question, and it's a really thorny question. Um, architectural history as a discipline tends to be written about a very, very small uh, percentage of what we might name by the term architecture. Um, uh, there are, uh, you know, in recent decades, um, efforts uh, on the record to uh, narrate the histories of various vernacular architectures and so on. Uh, but uh, by and large, Architecture is, uh, architectural history is written about architecture attached to names and moreover great names, uh, strong authors, we might call them, you know, your Palladias, your Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright, and so on. Um, what really intrigued me about the way that Noe's practice, uh, his design practice, um, was that he did practice in the same traditional way for part of the time. Uh, he and his firm, uh, Elliot Noyes and Associates, um, uh, they did um, work for clients. Um, they built houses, they built institutional buildings, and so on in a very standard way. But they also added a significantly different mode of practice, which is characteristic of the 1940s and 50s uh, and a wholesale transformation in what we might call the political economy of the discipline of architecture. Um, in this period, um, the architectural firm undergoes a pretty significant transformation. Uh, and I know you understand these kinds of transformations from your own scholarly work um, in the Eastern Bloc. Um, but Corporations in, are a little different there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> are different. Um, but in, uh, in the United States in particular, as a result of the political economic transformations of World War II, Architectural firms such as the famous Skidmore, Owings, and Merrill, which later becomes SOM, uh, these firms uh, transform into large-scale organizations. Um, and even if uh, architectural practices in this period didn't uh, 
do the same kind of thing as SOM, i.e. grow into a large multinational corporation in their own right, even if they remained a relatively modestly sized enterprise, such as Elliott Noyes' firm, uh, they nonetheless had to transform the way that they worked with large-scale organizations. Um, and so in the book, I, I look at the way in which industrial designers, for instance, uh, pioneered this new mode of practice. Um, and what happens in this situation is that although the firm may continue to design objects, buildings, and so on in a traditional sense, they also play a significant role in coordinating the commissioning of other uh, artists and architects and industrial designers um, to produce work on behalf of the corporation. And that's one of the ways, one of the reasons why I selected the IBM design consultancy that Noise uh, worked on. Uh, because uh, what Noise did was not to try to create one coherent image for the corporation. Instead, what he wanted to do was to uh, generate, in collaboration with IBM's own employees, its engineers and research scientists and so on, a systematic approach to design uh, of any possible object that could be of use to the corporate apparatus. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this, uh, the system would be, in effect, a set of rules, um, what they call the IBM Design Guidelines. And by applying this uh, kind of algorithm for design, any designer inside or outside of the corporation could work with within those constraints and produce um, a kind of design that would fit with what already existed as part of the corporation. So, um, so uh, in terms of trying to relate the history that I'm writing to standard architectural history, I think that it may appear a little bit more different, uh, a little bit more of a departure than I think it really is. I think that um, what I'm trying to do is to, to describe um, in a kind of fine-grained way um, another very significant model of architectural practice in the 20th century, um, one that takes um, some traditional elements but also adds new, new elements, uh, particularly this sustained and very articulate collaboration with a large-scale organization like IBM. So now I want to switch gears just a little bit and, and uh, ask you to talk about how, as the book developed, you had this opportunity to work inside of this uh, fellowship called the Quadrant Program. Sure, yeah. And I'm asking about it now because I think um, one of the great benefits of having this chance to work on the book among a group of people who are want to talk to you about it is that it really hones your skills in, in uh, talking about your own work. Mm -hmm. And it allows you to, to kind of formulate the answer to the question I just asked. You know, if you're an architectural historian and you're writing a design history of IBM, you know, how do you situate? And you have such a great way of talking about it. And I wonder if you can say a little bit about where you've been, how you've needed to, to formulate that answer and, and the contribution that the time there and also other fellowships that you've had have given you. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be glad to, um, especially since I'm so grateful to the University of Minnesota and especially to the Institute for Advanced Study there and the Quadrant Program uh, that's uh, run in conjunction with U of M Press. Um, uh, it was really uh, an incredibly uh, rewarding and useful experience um, for me. Um, uh, this book uh, is um, indeed, I hope it doesn't scare anyone off, uh, based upon my doctoral research. Um, so uh, what I was working with as raw material was a dissertation. Um, and uh, when I went off and took you know, my uh, first teaching position at Oberlin College um, and was trying to work on revising that dissertation into a manuscript uh, and you know, to try to get that holy grail of a book contract, um, I was really operating in the dark. Um, I was struggling to uh, look at models of uh, how other people had done it um, and trying to get advice from various people whether editors or colleagues um, or whatever. And um, what I ended up doing uh, was really uh, producing a kind of Frankenstein's monster <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a manuscript, adding in new things, taking them out, rearranging them, and so on, until I kind of lost the thread. So the, when I found out about the Quadrant Program uh, at, at Minnesota, um, it was a kind of... A godsend because I applied for the postdoctoral fellowship there, um, uh, which required 
requires you to produce um, a book proposal, and I produced that proposal. And although I wasn't awarded a fellowship, they did um, award me a stipend to come and work with the editorial board at the press and with faculty at the University of Minnesota on my manuscript and to give a handful of lectures there. Um, and this was an amazing experience because what they did was uh, they brought me into the center, uh, into the Institute of Advanced Study. I was able to talk with a lot of colleagues from other disciplines, um, particularly history of science and technology, um, uh, which has a very strong presence at University of Minnesota, but also with art and architectural historians. Um, and so it was a really great opportunity to workshop my work. Um, the Professors there read my work, um, and uh, they uh, read it very seriously, indeed, giving me a lot of detailed feedback. Um, able to sit around a big table and do a lot of question and answer. Uh, and I have to say, it really was a profound experience for me. It helped me to distill very quickly out of the vast um, mess uh, of archival apparatus and everything what um, the core of the, the story that I was trying to tell was. And it really helped me to simplify um, uh, the text in the end. Um, it, the manuscript uh, shrunk as a result um, from about 200,000 words to about 110,000 words. Um, so I was really able to kind of streamline the thing um, and, and write it in a much more direct uh, and coherent way. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful to the program and I recommend it. I could, every time I'm at the Society of Architectural Historians annual meeting or at a conference, I recommend it to anyone who's uh, struggling with the very difficult process of putting together a book proposal and a book manuscript. So now I'm going to ask you maybe a little bit of a hard question, which is, you know, from the 200,000 words down to 110,000, mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about what you decided not to say? You know, what, mm-hmm. what happened to those 90,000 words and, and what turned out to be the less critical part? And then that'll bring us to what you feel is the absolute critical argument and the sort of big picture takeaway of your book. Okay, sure. Yeah, um, it uh, is a complicated question because um, there's several different kinds of ways that I learned uh, to streamline the manuscript. Um, one uh, aspect of this uh, was uh, simply recognizing the difference between the dissertation and the book. Um, the dissertation as a form has certain rules to it, but one of the rules and constraints that is not there is how much stuff you can put into it. Um, particularly at Columbia, um, in art history, we tend to produce rather voluminous, um, uh, um, uh, my editors say archivally exuberant uh, uh, texts. Um, and that's a wonderful thing, and it serves a very important role in uh, furthering scholarship, I think. That dissertation is on the record, and, and so are you know, my colleagues. And we can always go and consult them if we really need uh, the nitty-gritty archival uh, exactitude of uh, those bodies of writing. Um, so on the one hand, uh, the simplification of the manuscript had to do with uh, simply calving off uh, extensive discursive footnotes, um, uh, digressive uh, elements, literature reviews, and, and that kind of thing, getting down to the core of the story. So that was one part. Then there's another part which uh, involved um, uh, trying to simplify uh, the story. Um, there are a lot of moving parts in my book uh, still, even in its simplified version, um, uh, but there are a lot characters um, uh, who um, were interesting in their own right, um, but weren't actually pushing the main uh, thesis or hypothesis of the book forward by being uh, inserted into the narrative. Um, So one figure who figured um, quite uh, centrally in my dissertation, who then drops out um, in this book, is the designer George Nelson, uh, designer and critic George Nelson, um, who was a member uh, for a short time of the IBM design consultancy uh, that Noise formed. Um, and he did do a couple of minor things uh, that were significant but relatively unimportant uh, to the IBM 
uh, program. Uh, and he did many, many, many things which were tremendously important for uh, design uh, programs elsewhere. So one of the things I was able to do was to take the material that I had gathered in my research on Nelson and actually take that and put it into another piece of writing that was uh, freestanding away from the book. And it became an article that I published in uh, Grey Room a few years ago. Um, uh, so there were a lot of episodes like that in the text where uh, uh, the narrative seemed to veer off in another direction. Um, and then there was just, um, I think, that um, endless task of refining one's writing. Um, uh, when doing the dissertation, especially because it was something that uh, I think... Uh, I, well, I know it was the it was the largest thing, the longest thing I'd ever written. Um, it was very hard to retain a kind of uh, discipline uh, in terms of controlling all of the different narrative elements. And uh, you know, over time and years of familiarity with the material, um, it became possible for me to eventually say things much more directly and not say them over and over again. Uh, so, eliminating some of the redundancy of my original manuscript was also important part of really shrinking that uh, text down to the trimmer, um, but still rather long um, size uh, that it is today. Yeah, I think that's really interesting uh, advice or, or ideas because I had a similar problem where you lose a little bit of control of the argument and you, you have to go back through and find it again and, and tighten it up. Exactly. We don't usually write 100,000 words. <laughs> And to try to track it all through the whole book is really quite a struggle. I think that's one of the biggest uh, things about writing a great book is is keeping your your mind on that argument at all times. Yes, so, one day uh, it's my, it's my hope that I will write a great book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's already done. So um, let's let's get to noise. So now now we've uh, heard a little bit about how the book came about and and how he kind of emerges from what you found as a protagonist in a much larger story. So tell us about him and what he did and who he was and, you know, anything you, you think you need to kind of set up the story of a cast of characters with the leading man. Okay, sure. Um, so uh, Noise uh, came from a long-standing uh, family in New England dating back to the Puritans um, who uh, migrated to North America. Um, and uh, his father was a professor of English at Harvard, um, although in typical self-facing fashion, he uh, described himself as a teacher. Um, and uh, Noyes uh, grew up in this very modest, um, efficient, um, and uh, simple uh, household. Um, he eventually attended Harvard in his own right, where he uh, studied architecture. Uh, but at the time, in the early 1930s, uh, the curriculum at the graduate at Harvard was still dominated by uh, the Beaux-Arts uh, ideals of the 19th and early 20th century. Um, and Noyes found this whole situation incredibly stultifying. Uh, so um, in a kind of uh, self-made man pattern that was showing uh, early evidence in his young life, um, he decided to draw out, temporarily at least, uh, and go on an archaeological expedition to Persia, you know, modern-day Iran. And um, uh, there he had an incredible set of adventures. He learned how to spray, and he learned how to uh, become a glider pilot, of all things, um, and uh, he became actually a very accomplished watercolorist. Um, uh, but this little caesura in architectural training uh, served an incredibly important uh, purpose in the end. When he returned to Cambridge uh, in uh, the second half of the 1930s, um, there had been a sea change uh, in uh, the curriculum at the GSD, um, it being over, of course, uh, Walter Brobius and Marcel Breuer uh, from uh, the Bauhaus, um, the, the fleeing Germany for England and then eventually landing in Cambridge. Um, and this really galvanized noise. He had been reading things like Toward an Architecture and uh, Looker his writings and Adolf Bena and things like that coming out of Europe, um, but he didn't see any of the effects um, until 
Gibbs and Burr took over. He became a star pupil of theirs. He worked in their office for a short time, uh, collaborating on the design of uh, a small handful of houses uh, for them. Uh, he was really an accomplished draftsman. Um, and then in 1940, um, Gropius used his newfound influence in North America to appoint Noyes to uh, the first position as curator of industrial design at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Um, and there, uh, noise really emerged onto a national stage. Um, uh, he organized several exhibitions, the most important of which is Organic Design and Home Furnishings of 1940 to 41. Um, and uh, this introduced him to a number of uh, prominent uh, young designers uh, who would become collaborators collaborators with Noyes for the rest of his life. Most importantly, uh, the team of Charles Eames and Erosarinen from Michigan. Um, and so, <laughs> long story short, though, um, Noyes' uh, glorious stint at MoMA was interrupted uh, by World War II. Um, he was uh, enlisted um, and became an officer and became someone in charge of glider research for the military. And through this position, uh, which involved uh, going to the Pentagon regularly, he uh, met Thomas Watson, Jr., the heir apparent to International Business Machine Corporation. Uh, the two of them became fast friends. They flew planes and gliders together and so on. And eventually, after the war, this um, was given um, some rather large contracts to design products for IBM, uh, particularly typewriters. Um, and so through this friendship, uh, eventually emerged the idea in Watson's mind, as well as Noises, um, uh, to experiment with design as a way of reforming uh, the corporation. Uh, this uh, new uh, post-World War II multinational business enterprise. Um, and so by 1956, a um, uh, little um, under five, uh, 15 years after they met, they finally formalized this arrangement as something called the IBM Design Consultancy. Uh, Noise became a consultant to IBM, and that's an important point. Um, Watson actually tried to hire Noise uh, to become an IBM employee, uh, and Noise turned him down. Uh, he said that the best way um, to work for IBM, the way to make the program of design reform as effective as possible, was for him to remain outside of the corporation, because then he would be outside of its uh, various managerial and hierarchical structures. Um, then he could actually access every level of corporation from the highest levels of management, such as the president, um, uh, Thomas Watson, or um, uh, the lowest level, um, uh, people working at, on the factory floors even. Um, so uh, Noise, of course, with this massive task of reforming every aspect of the material apparatus of IBM at a global scale, couldn't do it alone. So he assembled what I think is a kind of Justice League of designers. Um, uh, Paul Rand, the graphic designer, uh, then Charles Eames, the architect and um, a sort of multimedia uh, experimenter, and then George Nelson, uh, who I mentioned earlier, and then also the Julian uh, of American modernism and um, a curator of architecture and design, Edgar Kaufman, Jr., um, and the five of these guys uh, were assembled to work all as consultants on this, this massive project. So Noise, rather than actually redesigning the way that um, IBM's products looked, although he did do that to a certain extent, he was really managing a process of reform. Uh, he was concerned to coordinate the activities of the consultants with the activities of uh, IBM's own designers, uh, and it was really in that interaction that most of Noise's work took place. Um, uh, less time at the drafting board, in other words, and more time at the meeting table and the conference room. Uh, and so uh, um, Noise becomes a kind of interesting character, I think. Um, he's somebody who has a compelling personality in, in his own right. He has a kind of strong intellectual uh, core and um, certainly um, a tremendous amount of drive to accomplish this uh, massive project of reform. But at the same time, uh, he is a kind of self-effacing 
character. He uh, he drops out of the story and instead lets other people take center stage. And nowhere is this more apparent than in um, IBM's architectural commissions. Um, from the 1950s through the 1980s, IBM commissioned buildings from a kind of who's who list of uh, modern designers. Uh, Mies van der Rohe, Eero Saarinen, Marcel Breuer, Egon Ironman, the list goes on and on and on. Um, so he was very content to kind of curate uh, what he called IBM's corporate character rather than to simply take the opportunity of working for IBM to um, push his own formal architectural agenda. I find it really interesting that somebody who was working to reform the corporation, the way that he handled things was essentially to be scared of potential of the corporation to kind of take over. So in the consultant's <laughs> yeah. role, he's always outside of it, where he's kind of designing how everyone else is going to be working, and he gets to sit and watch. But maybe mm -hmm. this is his intelligence to understand that uh, once you're sort of inside, you're always, your position in the hierarchy is in some sense fixed, mm -hmm. and you're not going to be able to be the kind of reformer. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, it um, is, I think, tremendously prescient, um, especially when it comes to the aspect of the IBM design program that I mentioned a little bit um, obliquely earlier, this um, a project of the IBM design guidelines, where uh, Noise and company were trying to create this autonomous system for design that would eventually allow Noise to take a step back and uh, ostensibly the whole thing would run on its own. Um, in fact, uh, this project was uh, a total failure. Um, it didn't work because um, one of the things that IBM required over and over was this outside influence of noise, schemes, uh, rant, and so on. They consistently, over the course of three decades, rode to IBM's rescue um, when it was um, making difficult decisions. Um, there's a, a, a great, I think, episode of, of this in the 1960s, um, uh, and I talk about this in the fourth chapter of my book, about the IBM's project of naturalizing the computer. Um, what happens um, in the post-World War II era, and most people have forgotten about this, I think, um, entirely, because uh, computers have become uh, so successfully a natural uh, adjunct to our everyday existence. But what happened in the post-World War II era was that there was a lot of anxiety about computation. Um, the idea of automation of industry and other aspects of daily life uh, was a kind of specter uh, looming over us. Um, what would happen with the advent of computers controlling machines um, become a would it result in mass unemployment? Would it result in the nightmare scenarios that are so often played out in cinema about um, computers deciding the fate of mankind during World War III and so on? Um, and this was an absolute mass media phenomenon. So obviously this concerned IBM a lot. IBM as a purveyor of not only computers, but computational practices and technocratic management practices um, had to assuage the general public um, about uh, the efficacy and also the kind of humanity of its machines. Um, and uh, so what they did um, quite conventionally initially was to get a few IBM managers together and to work out a kind of publicity campaign. Um, to explain to everyone that um, uh, computers are not threatening, they're not going to hurt us, they're just going to help us, they're a tool like any other, and, um, uh, and they tried to create um, lectures for important public officials and, and private officials, uh, they tried um, to do ads and magazines and things like that, all of which was a kind of abject failure. Um, and it wasn't until Charles Eames was brought in to assess all of the work that they'd been doing that uh, they got um, a much clearer idea of how to pursue this process of naturalizing the computer. It was really Eames who theorized this. And he said, you can't just go around saying that computers are okay, um, they're just regular, because then you actually are um, uh, feeding the fires of anxiety. People will feel like you're lying. 
Instead, what you do, um, and we can do this through a really aggressive multimedia campaign, is to actually say two completely contradictory things at the same time. One, yes, the computer is just a machine like any other machine, but also that the computer is a wholly magical device that will completely revolutionize everything uh, in Western society, if not global society. Um, and it's only by sustaining these two contradictory narratives, holding them in perfect tension all the time, that you can successfully naturalize the computer. Then it becomes possible to arouse people's curiosity, to get them to interact physically with the computer, to be able to um, uh, to understand the way that computers work, uh, and so on. And so um, a lot of people have forgotten that um, the largest uh, portion of the office of Charles and Eames's output from the 1950s through the 1970s was in fact done for IBM. Uh, so the, the fourth chapter of the book goes through that work in some detail, explaining how it is that the Eameses used design in various media, film, print, uh, architecture, uh, uh, museum exhibitions, and so on, um, in order to naturalize the computer to um, a public that was highly suspicious of it. So let's talk about the computer. The The book is called The Interface. Mm -hmm. We haven't talked about interface yet. And I yes, wonder um, if you can also say a little bit about your argument that most people would would maybe not question, but they would be surprised to hear that architects had such a big part in designing computers at the beginning. Mm -hmm. and how the interface, the idea of the interface, and, and the reason you call the book the interface, how that all ties together with the, the invention of the computer itself. Okay, sure. If, you, if it's okay with you, I'd like to start from the last part of that question okay. and work my way backwards. Um, right, so the, the book is called The Interface. Um, uh, for what appears um, at first to be a simple reason, but then it actually it's uh, become very, very complex. Um, uh, the idea of, the basic idea of the IBM design program uh, was to use design in uh, multiple media uh, to reform the corporation and most importantly to communicate. Um, IBM saw its uh, role through its teams and through its managerial practices as being a, uh, a kind of machine for perfecting and enhancing communication, uh, to make communication more quick, uh, to save time, uh, but also to make it more accurate, to be able to communicate very complex ideas, um, and so on. Uh, so the whole project um, was uh, to use every medium possible uh, every medium uh, that could be redesigned, it needed to be redesigned as part of the essence of IBM as a corporation. Uh, this meant that IBM was going to transform uh, all of the, what we would think of as the kind of ephemera of the office, so things like business cards and stationery and so on, uh, up to products um, like computers and typewriters and voice recorders and all sorts of uh, peripheral devices, um, uh, up to architecture, and then um, even into uh, time-based media like uh, film and uh, television, into uh, spectacles um, in museums, and so on. So um, all of these different media were involved. Um, and so, of course, for me as the historian of this process, as the architectural historian of this process, um, it was uh, incumbent upon me to ask, well, what is the red thread that holds all this together conceptually? I mean, how could uh, IBM and Noise and Eames and RAN and so on uh, keep some sort of coherence in this vast cacophony of media? Um, and it turns out that um, the whole question of maintaining that continuity um, is an architectural and spatial logic that I um, am not alone in calling the interface. Um, and uh, the interface is um, a complex object to talk about because it is usually nearly invisible. Um, uh, we notice interfaces uh, when they are um, bad, basically. But if they're good, 
they seem perfectly natural, and so we pay very little attention to them. But uh, so maybe it makes sense to start with a basic um, description of what an interface is. When it comes to the computer, um, a computer is a logic circuit, um, and uh, the computer can't be used for anything. In fact, it's even poisonous and dangerous to you. You can't touch it um, unless it is covered over with a series of media that help translate our rather gross uh, motor control of um, being able to move our hands and uh, fingers and thumbs and eyes and, and, and mouth and so on in space to transform all of that gross motor action into changes, microscopic changes uh, of voltages in a CPU. So a computer you can think of as uh, something at the center, the CPU, um, and then you can imagine it like an onion covered over with um, eventually hundreds of layers of hardware and software. Um, and this layered, um, this, this layered uh, set of strata um, is what we would call the interface, the thing that helps to translate between um, uh, our uh, lived reality and um, the subatomic uh, reality of uh, the CPU. Um, so um, if we think of the interface as a design object, it has tremendously high stakes. It's actually what makes a computer useful. It's what makes it function in the world as anything other than a rather poisonous paperweight. So um, uh, the, um, as you can imagine in my uh, describing a computer as a series of layers covering over this um, CPU, um, we've actually got a kind of spatial metaphor. And it turns out that noise in collaboration with Edgar Kaufman Jr. and with IBM's designers actually uh, sculpted this metaphor of the interface as an architectural metaphor. Uh, they, um, through their research into computing machinery, figured out that one can divide the physical reality of the computer into two spaces, um, and they use architectural metaphors to describe these two places. The first, they called the parlor, um, the living room, if you will. Um, it's the space where you can be, as a human being, interacting with uh, dials and knobs and keyboards and so on, and it's a safe, comfortable space. It's where discourse takes place. It's where all of the refined uh, uh, production of knowledge takes place. Then they said there's another space, and they called that space the coal cellar. Um, if you, want, you, know, you could think of this as a base superstructure kind of thing in, in vulgar Marxian terms. Um, the, the coal cellar is the basement. It's where all of the productive, uh, energetic work goes on. But that work is also dirty and dangerous. Um, and so by dividing the computerized world into the two spaces and thinking about how to keep them separated from one another, but also... Uh, um, uh, connected so that they can be uh, very uh, productive um, was the whole problem of computing design. Um, and to minimize the presence of the, the coal cellar um, and to maximize uh, the um, refinement of the parlor became the whole spatial game of uh, designing computers um, and their enclosures, um, which would selectively mediate certain aspects of what was going on inside the machine, um, uh, but never overwhelm uh, the uh, operator uh, with all of the um, uh, dangerous things going on in the coal cellar. Um, this actually turned into a, um, a very rigorously conceived architectural design, um, which dominated um, the architecture of computing uh, for two decades. Um, it's what I've come to call the white room. Um, it's a special room uh, that is uh, set up with its own HVAC and electrical systems and so on, usually glassed in, uh, usually kept um, uh, free of things like static electricity and so on, which interfere with computational um, devices, um, and uh, is set apart from the rest of the building in which it's inscribed. Um, and this white room, uh, which has all sorts of cabinets in it for these uh, machines, which are the size of very, very large furniture, um, uh, this space uh, was then uh, kept, as it were, visually and spatially sterile. It was a kind of uh, blank space. Um, uh, noise actually built the 
first white room uh, in Poughkeepsie near the design lab there, um, and uh, and they would use it for critics um, or design um, critiques uh, every so often. And he would visit the IBM engineers, um, and it would it became very quickly the architectural image of teleprocessing, of tele, telecomputing, and what eventually would become uh, the real-time uh, computing systems uh, that we use today, um, such as the World Wide Web. Um, uh, this white blank space um, one sees everywhere, whether it's on the Google homepage, which of course is just white, um, uh, or it's in various um, ads or even in films, like uh, say The Matrix, where the space of telecomputing is figured as this blank white space. Um, so uh, um, Noise was really uh, working on developing the very specific and technical, but also aesthetic means by which we would interact with these machines. So to return to this idea of the interface then as an organizing concept for the book, it really helped me to understand how IBM as designers were thinking about all of these media working in parallel with one another. Um, in fact, they understood IBM something like something like a CPU, something like a, a kind of very complex and powerful machine, but one that couldn't actually be useful to anyone without these layers of interfaces um, uh, surrounding them, mediating their relationship to other people. So film, video, television, uh, architecture, uh, industrial design, uh, graphic design, all of these became essential means um, for uh, IBM to exist in the world. Um, and I think that this is um, one of the most important um, uh, aspects of the book and its argument, um, because it reflects on a, a very pressing contemporary concern, uh, which is the status of the corporation in contemporary society. Um, of course, there are people occupying various things. There are people uh, revolting in the streets of, of Athens and, and so on, uh, all over the world, really, um, uh, in response to uh, problems that they have with corporations. Um, and uh, there's a tendency, I think, a really terrible tendency in a contemporary discourse, political, scholarly, um, uh, or elsewhere, um, to, to talk about the corporation in either exceedingly personal or exceedingly abstract terms. Either the corporation is um, just a person like any other, so Microsoft did this today, um, as if that was a transparent and logical uh, statement, uh, or um, it's described as a purely abstract machine, which cannot be touched, cannot be understood, it's um, material, conceptual, and so on. And to my mind, especially by virtue of studying uh, the histories of corporations like IBM so closely, and to study them from the vantage point of their material culture, I think it's quite obvious that um, neither of these, this, uh, this personal, neither this personal situation nor the abstract situation is really the case. In fact, we have something that is neither of the situations. Um, a corporation is. Um, an aggregate of material practices with material effects, and, and these things can be known and described in really concrete terms. And so I think that, um, you know, my book can't accomplish this transformation of discourse of the corporation on its own, far from it. But I hope that it's, some, it's a book that will interact with uh, other books on this subject in order to give us a little bit more leverage in terms of how we describe corporations and the way that they behave in the modern or, or postmodern world. It's interesting to hear you talk about the corporation that way, considering that I talk about communism and, and living in a communist state in a sort of similar way. Yes, yes. That the regime is not something separate from you. It's also not totally abstract. It's a set of practices and it has a material culture and in some sense, what you just described is, you know, the closed state of a single country's communist government. So that's yes. an interesting uh, overlap that we've come, we've talked about many years ago, I think, but it's now making me think that I need to revisit that aspect of some of my own research. So before I let you go, because believe it or not, we're getting close to our end here, I really want you to talk about some of the buildings. 
Okay. So can you say a little bit in the context of the interface and the white room, my understanding is that part of your argument is that the buildings are, in, in a sense, an extension of this idea, and they mm -hmm. are containers for some of these interfaces. Yes, yes. I mean, that's one of the reasons why uh, so much of the book is taken up with describing these other media, not just architecture, um, such as the design of computers themselves, um, uh, in, in particular, um, because the um, architecture that IBM produced, I think, is very difficult to understand um, as um, conventional architecture. Um, uh, it doesn't yield itself very well to a standard analysis uh, that we might make, uh, say, for instance, looking at its um, uh, technical details, its tectonic articulation. Um, uh, the, if one approaches the buildings that way, um, they become rather interesting, actually. I think the, the buildings aren't <clears throat> going to light anyone on fire uh, with a kind of passion for architectural beauty. Um, many of them are tremendously accomplished works of architecture, um, but they're not ones that set out um, to accomplish um, uh, their aims through a kind of aggressive manipulation of form. Instead, I argue, what's going on with these buildings is a continuing refinement of architecture as a teletechnological medium. Um, if one looks at the floor plans, for instance, of many of the buildings, such as IBM's uh, global headquarters in Armonk, New York, uh, that SOM designed in the early 1960s, um, uh, massive amounts of that floor plan are given over to gigantic computing apparatus, which were um, used to keep track of IBM's far-flung activities um, throughout the globe in real time. Um, so these buildings are um, a very articulate system of organizing information in space and not simply in the space that the architectural envelope itself contains. And that's what's tremendously important about these buildings is that they are really meant uh, to enclose a vast space uh, that um, is way beyond their literal structural confines. Um, uh, one can think of them, uh, and IBM certainly did this explicitly, think of them like fortresses in the um, you know, ancient or medieval sense, uh, where you place an enclosure in a landscape in order to dominate the landscape around it. You don't simply wall in all of the landscape you want to control, but rather put an installation which then um, uh, within that space, which then controls uh, the things outside of it. Um, and so drawing on some of the architectural tropes uh, from the monastery, the medieval monastery and the medieval fortress, uh, and then reapplying them uh, in conjunction with uh, the most um, technologically sophisticated application of telecommunications technologies, um, uh, IBM created a new kind of building, um, a corporate architecture, uh, which uh, was meant to be seamlessly integrated with every other such installation around the globe. This also had the interesting impact uh, that um, if it's true that uh, IBM's buildings all needed to meet these very specific constraints, it also opened up a lot of freedom on the part of the architects to design these buildings slightly differently. So while a building by, say, Egon Ironman and a building by Marcel Breuer might both be IBM buildings, both be situated in Northern Europe, and so on, they um, are, um, in fact, uh, to the naked eye, quite different in their, their appearances. So the architectural approach that I try to take, the architectural historical approach I try to take here, is to actually explain how these buildings are related to one another, what parts of their architecture are governed by technology, and which parts um, uh, um, actually exceed in a kind of aesthetic excess, um, those imperatives. So if, if we take your argument that the company has a kind of conceptual idea for these buildings, mm -hmm. why wouldn't it be that they would have just cultivated a design office inside the company that mm -hmm. would then have spread a kind of IBM architecture where you don't need Ironman and you don't need Saarinen mm -hmm. to, to uh, build these buildings? Um, Outside of the question of the kind of prestige of the architects, it seems to me it would have been more in line with the corporate culture to, mm -hmm. to cultivate a, a kind of IBM architecture the way that, you know, in my research, you find Zlin, uh, the Batya company, cultivating its architecture. 
Right, right. Yeah, um, it's a good question. Um, and I think that there are a couple of different possible answers to it. Um, but I do have my, my preferred answer. Um, so in the interest of time, maybe I'll jump to that. Um, the, I think that the answer to it, um, uh, and I get into this in some detail in the third chapter, which is really devoted to the architecture, um, it, it has to do with what IBM uh, saw as its own um, identity as a corporation. Um, uh, it was constantly changing, but uh, changing at a relatively slow pace. And um, Okay, so yeah, so I have this preferred answer um, uh, to that question. In the case of IBM, I think in other cases it's very complex. But, um, in the case of IBM, it has to do with um, the way that IBM uh, uh, sought to control its architectural apparatus. Um, and that actually changed um, uh, pretty dramatically uh, uh, between the beginning of the design consultancy and the end of the design consultancy. So uh, from uh, the 1950s uh, to the 1970s. It was really only about eight years or so that Noyes really had carte blanche to select architects for various commissions. Um, he still was a tremendously important voice in selecting um, architects, um, but uh, IBM in the um, early 1960s formed a new uh, autonomous arm of the corporation called the Real Estate and Construction Division, or RECD which was a kind of holding company for IBM's massive real estate assets, and then also a company that would manage the construction of new installations around uh, the globe. Uh, IBM uh, later transformed this in the 1980s into IBM RE, which was real estate development, where actually their real estate portfolio became a very important part of their corporate profits um, uh, quarter to quarter. Um, and so uh, what they did was rather than produce a set of design guidelines uh, that would um, uh, cover um, the various aspects of, of designing, say, a building and then uh, having those sufficiently refined so that some kind of in-house architect could actually accomplish the design, um, instead they produced a very articulate set of technical specifications and then they commissioned um, an outside um, organization, an architecture firm, to actually provide that specific service. And this was, as far as I can gather from working in the archives, all a very um, a kind of precise and actuarial calculation of um, uh, risks and profits and losses and so on. Um, it was actually more profitable for IBM to work with um, uh, what we think of as kind of brand name uh, expensive architect than it would have been to try to produce a kind of in-house uh, design firm that could then service its global operations. There's another component to this, which is that, um, of course, IBM is a multinational company. Um, and uh, in working in these various uh, foreign territories, um, it actually behooved IBM to work with local architects and engineers and contractors who knew the lay of the land wherever IBM was trying to build a building. So this became quite important, and IBM tended to actually hire even in the United States or North America, architects who were from uh, near the area where the building was to be built. So, for instance, even in a building that Noyce designed in Los Angeles, um, IBM also hired on uh, uh, Quincy Jones and Frederick Emmons to help Noyce and to be the local architects on the design. So, so there was um, a kind of practical uh, mindset, I think, for IBM in turning to um, what we might think of as kind of fancy architects in order to get their buildings built. It is very pragmatic strategy, and I think probably insurance and some of the the laws related to architecture kind of contribute to that. Yeah. Um, because this way, if the building falls down, it's on the architect. Yeah. And it's not on <laughs> IBM. <laughs> right. The architect's one responsibility. Yeah, um, exactly. So, all right, we're coming to the end of the hour. And before we go, I'd love to hear a little bit about what you're working on now and uh, how this research has sort of set you in a different direction or if you're on something totally new. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I've got two large projects at the moment. One is um, I'm collaborating with um, a group of architectural historians um, 
and uh, theorists um, called Aggregate. And uh, we just published a book together uh, that came out on University of Pittsburgh Press uh, in April, um, uh, Governing by Design. And uh, we've just recently incorporated um, and we're going to become an editorial group uh, that uh, brings together um, collaborative projects, innovative projects by architectural historians uh, in the future. Um, so uh, with the, under the auspices of that project, um, I'm working with Lucia L.A. from Princeton University, and we are uh, doing a book, uh, which will hopefully be an edited volume involving um, uh, quite a few people, about the disciplinary origins of architectural history um, and how architectural history emerged uh, from uh, art history as a discipline uh, in the middle of the century um, and the ways in which um, very important theoretical questions were already being uh, debated and discussed um, uh, then uh, rather than in the so-called theory moment of the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, so that's one project. And then uh, my own personal uh, scholarly project right now is, is starting research on a new book uh, which is meant to be uh, a long durée history of corporate architecture uh, stretching back to the 17th century um, and, and trace back um, the origins of the architecture of what we might call the modern business enterprise uh, to the 17th century in England um, and then to move through some carefully selected case studies up through the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, um, concluding with, uh, I hope, uh, anyway, looking at uh, the architecture of the global stock exchange in the post Bretton Woods era, i.e., you know, post 71, 73. So, um, so it's a wildly ambitious project. I'm sure I'm going yes. to have to discipline it in any number of different ways before it really <laughs> takes shape. But um, right now, I'm trying to cast a broad net, and I'm, I'm very excited about working on it. Well, maybe in a few years we can be back talking to you about one or more of those next books. That would be delightful. I would be thrilled. It would mean that I was done with the book. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate it, and I hope to talk to you soon. Yeah, it would be great to talk soon. You've been listening to an interview with John Harwood, author of The Interface, IBM and the Transformation of Corporate Design, 1945 to 1976, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2011. I'm your host, Kimberly Zarekor. Thanks for listening to New Books in Architecture, and have a great week.